Our guest today is Jeff Wiesner. He was born and raised in upstate New York and holds a degree in English and American literature and language from Harvard University. He works as an author, book reviewer, and an editor with a focus on Africa, the Caribbean, and environmental issues. He is the author of the collection of essays, A Basket of Leaves, 99 Books That Capture the Spirit of Africa, and editor of African Lives, an anthology of memoirs and autobiographies. His articles have appeared in the Christian Science Monitor, the Boston Globe, the Wall Street Journal, and Wild Earth, to name a few. He blogs about African literature and translation for words without borders. This afternoon, Mr. Wisner will preside will present the edited volumes Thoreau's Wildflowers and Thoreau's Animals in celebration of the bicentennial of Henry David Thoreau's birth. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Jeff Wisner. Well, thank you very much for that introduction. Um, uh, thank you all for coming. I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks also to uh, Deborah for making arrangements, uh, Brian for setting up the AV. Um, can everyone um, hear me all right? Yeah? Doing okay? Okay. Um, well, again, I'm, I'm Jeff Wisner, and I'm the editor of um, two collections of writings from the Journal of Henry David Thoreau. I'll just take a moment to say I've just come from the Thoreau Society annual gathering in Concord earlier this month, and uh, specialists and people who live in Concord, as you may know, say Thoreau. Most human beings, including English professors and teachers, say Thoreau. <clears throat> but even within the Thoreau Society, there are people, including the executive director, who say Thoreau. So there are really no, no judgments, however you want to say it. Uh, those are both fine. Um, so two collections of, of writings uh, from Thoreau's journal. One is on wildflowers, the other is on animals. Uh, and for both books, I used the same strategy, which was to go through the complete journal, which was published in 14 volumes in 1906 and um, amounts to about 2 million words in all. I selected the passages that I thought were most interesting or beautiful or significant in some other way. And, uh, and I arranged them by day of the year. Because um, the, the day of the year and the seasons were of great uh, natural and, and spiritual significance to Thoreau. Um, now in both cases, for both of these books, I restricted myself to the plants and animals that Thoreau saw in and around his hometown of Concord, Massachusetts. Um, Despite, uh, despite his travels, Thoreau said that he had a, a genius for staying at home, that he traveled much in Concord. And Concord was really the center of his, his life and his literary life. Um, both of these books also, um, uh, also contain black and white illustrations, which I, I think adds to the experience. Um, so my talk today will be in three parts. I'll talk first about uh, how I came to create the first book, Thoreau's Wildflowers, and some of the themes in his writings about flowers. Uh, next, I'll talk about to what extent we can think of Thoreau as an ecologist, 
And then I want to take a look at his life uh, with animals. So as I said, the, the 1906 edition of the journal was published in 14 volumes. They were reprinted later by Dover into uh, oversized volumes, four pages for one big page. Uh, I bought those in 1979 when I first read the journal. Um, and uh, I finished in the fall, and that was still one of the greatest reading experiences I've, I've had in my life. I was genuinely sad to finish. Uh, Thora's Wildflowers was published last year by Yale. Uh, Thora's Animals came out in March this year. And I'm, I'm fortunate in my timing, uh, just dumb luck, because this is 2017 is the 200th anniversary of Thora's birth. Uh, so I'll start with the first book and with uh, Thora's preoccupation with wildflowers, um, uh, by which I mean all the flowering plants of Concord, uh, trees included. Uh, as I developed the book, I was, I was keenly aware that although I knew quite a lot about Thoreau, I didn't know that much about plants. I'm not a botanist, I'm not a naturalist, I'm not even a gardener. Uh, but I wanted the identifications to be as accurate as possible. So I was very grateful to have the help and support of Cherry Corey, shown here. She's a naturalist and photographer um, uh, who's been based in Concord for years, although she's just decamping to Vermont. Uh, she's the former education director of the New England Wildflower Society, uh, former executive director of the Harvard Museum of Cultural and Natural History, and she leads walks through great meadows and other natural areas, which I've uh, tried to go on whenever I can. I was also very glad to have the help of Ray Angelo. Um, he's considered the leading expert on Thoreau and the plants of Concord. He's also the creator of the Botanical Index to the Journal of Thoreau. And he agreed to let me reprint his essay, Thoreau as Botanist, uh, in my book, which provides a lot of detail on what Thoreau knew and, and when he knew it. One of my challenges was getting the right illustrations for this book, which I thought were really essential to make it work. Um, Barry Moser, as you may know, is one of the most celebrated book illustrators in America. He's had a long career. Uh, he's illustrated works by Thoreau, Emerson, and Melville, along with Moby Dick, uh, Frankenstein, Alice in Wonderland, the Bible, many other works. Um, this is his self-portrait and some of his, some of his work. Uh, I knew a lot of what he's, he'd done, but I didn't find out until I was finishing my manuscript that early in his career in 1979, um, which I'm just realizing is the, the year that I read the journal, um, but in that year he made about 400 beautiful pen and ink drawings of plants for a book called Flowering Plants of Massachusetts, published by UMass Press. And naturally many of these were the same plants that Thoreau saw and wrote about. So I contacted him, and I was um, delighted to get his permission to reprint more than 200 of his drawings in my book. And you'll see some more of them in, in the slides coming up. Um, Thora's preoccupation with flowers was not a secret. Uh, it was noticed by his contemporaries, including Hawthorne. In Mosses from an Old Manse in 1846, Hawthorne writes, the pond lily grows abundantly along the margin. That delicious flower, which, as Thoreau tells me, opens its virgin bosom to the first sunlight and perfects its being through the magic of that genial kiss. 
He has beheld beds of them unfolding in due succession as the sunrise stole gradually from flower to flower, a sight not to be hoped for unless when a poet adjusts his inward eye to a proper focus with the outward organ. Uh, there's a lot to say about the relationship of Thoreau with Ralph Waldo Emerson. Uh, books have been written about this. Uh, both men lived in Concord. Emerson was 14 years older than Thoreau and much more famous. Uh, Thoreau admired him. He worked for Emerson's family as a handyman. He even moved to Staten Island for a few months to teach the children of one of Emerson's relatives, and he built his cabin at Walden Pond on land that Emerson owned. Uh, in his own day, many people considered Thoreau a minor satellite of Emerson, but Thoreau was determined to take his own path as a writer and as a man, and he did. Uh, in May of 1856, Emerson took a walk with Thoreau to Sawmill Brook in Concord. Uh, Emerson wrote about it in his journal, saying he, Thoreau, quote, was in search of yellow violet and manyanthes, which he waded into the water for, and which he concluded on examination had been out five days. Now, manyanthes trifoliata is a small white flower, also called buckbean. Having found his flowers, Emerson goes on, he drew out of his breast pocket his diary and read the names of all the plants that should bloom on this day, 20 May, whereof he keeps account as a banker when his notes fall due. And I think Thoreau would not have appreciated being compared to a banker. Um, as I said, I, I thought the best approach for my collection was to arrange the writings from the journal by day of the year so you can see the progress of how the plants appear and disappear. And when you arrange them that way, you see a few interesting things. I'd like to talk a little about three of these, uh, his treatment of scent, of color, and the theme of anticipation that runs through all of Thoreau's work. <clears throat> uh, beginning with scent, Thoreau writes, in Hubbard's maple swamp, I see the evergreen leaves of the gold thread, as well as the michela and large pyrola. I begin to snuff the air and smell the ground. And this is a Barry Moser drawing of gold thread. As another example, he writes, I pluck dry sprigs of pennyroyal, which I love to put in my pocket, for it scents me thoroughly and reminds me of garrets full of herbs. Thoreau sometimes thought of fragrance as something belonging to the season itself. This is from May 16, 1852. Near Jenny Dugan's, perceive that unaccountable fugacious fragrance as of all flowers. It is a general fragrance of the year. The whole earth is as fragrant as a bouquet held to your nose. And of course, there were fragrances that were not so pleasant. Uh, the Smilax herbacea, carrion flower, smells exactly like a dead rat in the wall. And uh, he says elsewhere that uh, one of these plants smelled like a, a dead dog washed up along the river. Um, so color. Um, Thor was very attentive to color and how the colors of plants changed through the year and seemed to ripen as if the earth itself were a giant flower. April 1853, he writes, two crowfoots out on the cliff, pale yellow offering of spring, the crowfoot being a kind of buttercup. He was always looking to find the first blossoms that appeared in the spring. Here he's talking about the blossom of the willow. It is fit that this almost earliest spring flower should be yellow, the color of the sun. Later in the year, he notices the appearance of blue flowers that seem to echo the sky. Uh, the viola ovata 
is one of the minutest of spring flowers, but haste to push up and open its lesser azure to the greater above. Uh, the Vila ovata is also known as the arrow leaf violet. Still later in the year comes the color red. In May 1853, he writes, yellow is the color of spring, red of midsummer. Through pale golden and green, we arrive at the yellow of the buttercup, through scarlet to the fiery July red, the red lily. And here he's writing in July. Any redness is after all rare and precious. It is the color of our blood. The rose owes its preeminence in great measure to its color. Later in the summer, many of the colors had faded and Thora begins to look for color in the grasses and then the turning leaves. Uh, he seemed to see the color purple, I think, as a kind of ripened version of the blues and reds that came earlier in the year. Uh, this is from August 1858. Two interesting tall purplish grasses appear to be the prevailing ones now. They also, by their rich purple reflections or tinges, seem to express the ripeness of the year. Thoreau paid a lot of attention to fall foliage, and some of the passages in his journal were used for an essay called Autumnal Tints. Here in October 1858, he writes, the brilliant autumnal colors are red and yellow. Blue is reserved to be the color of the sky, but yellow and red are the colors of the earth flower. So here he's, he's metaphorically viewing the whole earth as if it were a blossom, as if it were a flower. As the passage continues, he imagines the year itself taking on the fall colors, and he starts to see how the different natural cycles are connected like small and large wheels within each other. You have the cycle of ripening fruit and of turning leaves and the cycle of the earth around the sun. He writes, every fruit on ripening and just before its fall acquires a bright tint. So do the leaves, so the sky before the end of the day and the year near its setting. And this, by the way, is a photo by Cherry Corey. I believe it's Great Meadows in Concord. Um, she's done some wonderful photos, and I hope they'll appear in a book one of these days. Uh, and this brings us to the last, and I think most important, theme that comes through Thor's writings on wildflowers, and uh, also on animals, and really in his work in general. And that's the theme of anticipation. This was laid out by Perry Miller in his 1958 book, Consciousness in Concord. Uh, Consciousness in Concord is in part the text of a section of the journal that had been lost before then, and it's partly Perry Miller's commentary on the journal. And Miller writes, all the journal, earnestly before the completion of Walden, more stridently thereafter, is a stratagem to anticipate and so to survive the winter. If you read the journal consecutively, you see that every winter is a retirement to prepared positions. At last, there's only one stronghold. The mind can anticipate spring. In April 1852, Thoreau wrote one of the most important quotations, I think, in all of his work. Brings together his thoughts on animals as well as flowers and his sense of the cycles of nature. For the first time, I perceive this spring that the year is a circle. I see distinctly the spring arc thus far. It is drawn with a firm line. Every incident is a parable of the great teacher. The cranberries washed up in the meadows and into the road on the causeways now yield a pleasant acid. He continues, why should just these sights and sounds accompany our life? 
Why should I hear the chattering of blackbirds? Why smell the skunk each year? I would fain explore the mysterious relation between myself and these things. And this, by the way, is an illustration of a skunk by Debbie Kaspari, who, uh, who illustrated my animals book. I would at least know what these things unavoidably are, make a chart of our life, know how its shores trend, that butterflies reappear and when, know why just this circle of creatures completes the world. Can I not by expectation affect the revolutions of nature, make a day to bring forth something new? And when you follow Thor's plant descriptions through the year, you see that many of them concern the theme of anticipation. He writes, it is remarkable how true each plant is to its season. Why should not the fringed gentian put forth early in the spring, instead of holding in till the latter part of September? How short a time it is with us. There are many passages about the skunk cabbage, uh, one of the first flowers to appear in the spring. Um, as the ice melts in the swamps, I see the horn-shaped buds of the skunk cabbage, green with a bluish bloom, standing uninjured, ready to feel the influence of the sun the most prepared for spring to look at of any plant. And this entry about the calla lily is an example of another kind of anticipation in Thoreau's philosophy. And that's the idea that you find the things you're prepared to find. Uh, this is from July, 1857. Calla at the south end of Gowing Swamp. Having found this in one place, I now found it, find it in another. He goes on. Many an object is not seen, though it falls within the range of our visual ray, because it does not come within the range of our intellectual ray, i.e., we are not looking for it. So in the largest sense, we find only the world we look for. And that, like anticipation of the seasons, is an idea that comes up again and again in his work. Uh, Thoreau <coughs> was able to distinguish between several different species of goldenrod, which bloomed at different times. And here he sees the early goldenrod as a warning that the year, or at least the summer, is drawing towards its end. How fatally the season has advanced toward the fall. How beautiful now the early goldenrods. After, ne after nearly all the real flowers are gone, he starts to look at the fall foliage as if it were another kind of flower. Here he's writing in early October. Some maples and sproutlands are of a delicate, pure, clear, unspotted red, inclining to crimson, surpassing most flowers. I would fain pluck the whole tree and carry it home for a nosegay. So. And late in the year, he returns to the skunk cabbage, which I sometimes think of as the secret hero of the book. Uh, we have to remember that winter was a serious business in New England in the 19th century. If you didn't have enough food or money to buy food or enough firewood stacked up to get you through the winter, you could be in serious trouble. And when Thor lived at Walden, he was, his consciousness of this was underlined because he was living in a kind of marginal neighborhood where um, <clears throat> poor people, ex-slaves, um, uh, alcoholic veterans, other, other marginal people were living and uh, struggling for existence. Thoreau often felt um, anxious and melancholy in November, especially, and the skunk cabbage was one of the things that encouraged him. He writes, if you are afflicted with melancholy at this season, 
Go to the swamp and see the brave spears of skunk cabbage buds already advanced toward a new year. Their gravestones are not bespoken yet. Who shall be sexton to them? Is it the winter of their discontent? Do they seem to have lain down to die, despairing of skunk cabbage them? <clears throat> he goes on. Uh, he had more sense of humor than he's often given credit for. So I want to move on to Thoreau and animals shortly, uh, but first I want to say something about the bigger meaning of his observations, um, specifically his contribution to the science of ecology. Ecology wasn't defined as a term until 1866, four years after his death, and uh, this is the man who invented the term, uh, German scientist and artist Ernst Haeckel. On the right is an illustration of sea anemones from his 1904 book, Art Forms of Nature. Uh, the standard definition of ecology is the study of organisms and their interaction with the environment. So it's a study of systems on both the large and small scales. And by this definition, I think we'd have to call Thoreau a real ecologist. Whether he was looking through a microscope, which he sometimes did, or walking through a forest. <coughs> Excuse me. He was always thinking about how people, animals, the environment, and even the spiritual realm interacted. Um, one of the standard criticisms of Thoreau is that in his early years, he was an idealist and a kind of mystic, and that as his scientific interests developed, he became just a dry collector of data. Um, I don't agree with that myself, and another person who doesn't agree with that is um, J. Lyndon Shanley, who wrote a book in 1957 called The Making of Walden. Uh, Shanley wrote, we must see the collecting of the data that looms so large in these last years of his life for what it was, not a dusty road to an impenetrable swamp, but a deeper and satisfying exploration of the world that Thoreau wanted to know. Only one enamored of what Thoreau called the sublimo slipshod appreciation of things can bewail his measuring snow depths, counting tree rings, and studying the temperatures and currents of the rivers. Those who do so do not see at all where Thoreau was going, and apparently think that exact knowledge must inevitably rob one of imagination and insight. They fail to appreciate Thoreau's pioneer study of ecology. Here he's being called an ecologist in 1957. Uh, in 1984, the journal was reprinted in 14 volumes, as it originally appeared, uh, but with new introductions to each volume by Walter Harding, who's one of the uh, towering figures of Thoreau scholarship, um, helped found the Thoreau Society in 1941, wrote a classic biography. And Harding, Walter Harding writes that Thoreau's studies of fruits and berries and the succession of forest trees, quote, made him aware far earlier than any of his contemporaries how rapidly we were devastating and destroying the vast natural resources of this country. He studied the techniques of soil and timber conservation, and he denounced the ravages of the fur trade. He has thus rightfully earned the title of father of the American ecology movement. And finally, uh, Gary Paul Nabhan is a writer and naturalist. He wrote the introduction to Faith in a Seed, in 1993, which was created from some of the unpublished manuscripts of Thoreau. And he simply takes it for granted that Thoreau was an ecologist, writing Thoreau was the first Anglo-American field ecologist to be influenced by Darwin's theory of natural selection and adaptation. So Thoreau wasn't just 
a self-taught uh, botanist. He was familiar with all the leading authorities of his day. Uh, as early as 1839, Thoreau was 22. He'd only been keeping his journal a couple of years. He was reading Carl Linnaeus, the 18th century Swedish scientist who created the scientific method for naming plants and animals. And uh, he obviously admired him. Thoreau writes, Linnaeus, setting out for Lapland, surveys his comb and spare shirt, leather breeches, and gauze cap to keep off gnats, with as much complacency as Bonaparte would a park of artillery to be used in the Russian campaign. The quiet bravery of the man is admirable. <clears throat> On the fall of 1851, spring of 1852, Thoreau returns to Linnaeus and writes about him a number of times. And in 1853, he finds a plant in a swamp that he learned about from reading Linnaeus and had been reminded of by Emerson. So it's a nice example of this theory of anticipation. He found the plant because he had been prepared to find it. Quote, saw something blue or glaucous in Beckstow's swamp today. Approached and discovered the Andromeda polyfolia in the midst of the swamp at the north end, not long since out of bloom. This is another instance of a common experience. When I'm shown from abroad, or hear of, or in any way become interested in some plant or other thing, I'm pretty sure to find it soon. Within a week, RWE, that is Emerson, showed me a slip of this in a botany as a great rarity, which George Bradford brought from Watertown. I had long been interested in it by Linnaeus's account. I now find it in abundance. And here's the flower he was talking about. Uh, it became one of his favorite flowers, Andromeda polyfolia. It's also called bog rosemary. Uh, has these beautiful pink bell-shaped blossoms. Uh, this is a photo from the New England Wildflower Society. In Thoreau's day, the leading botanist and zoologist probably in the world was the Swiss scientist Louis Agassiz, who lived uh, just a few miles away in Cambridge, where he taught at Harvard. In the spring of 1847, Thoreau collected specimens of fish for Agassiz, as well as uh, painted turtles, spotted turtles, and snapping turtles. But um, Thoreau was never comfortable with killing animals for science, and eventually he realized that Agassiz was often wrong about what was going on in nature, at least in the local areas that Thoreau knew about. And after a while, almost every time that Thoreau mentions Agassiz in his journal, it's to point out some blunder, which makes for some entertaining passages. So here he's relating that according to Emerson, Agassiz thinks some of his pet turtles may live to be 400 or 500 years old. It's not very likely. Thoreau doesn't openly make fun of Agassiz in the journal. He just quietly records these preposterous statements like this one. Agassiz tells his class that the intestinal worms of the mouse are not developed except in the stomach of the cat. So Agassiz was a creationist, uh, although a scientist. He never accepted the theories of Darwin. Thoreau, on the other hand, uh, followed Darwin closely. He read the, the Voyage of the Beagle, which was published in 1839, uh, and took notes on Darwin in his journal. Here he's, he's recording um, what Darwin said about his visit to the Galapagos Islands. And he focuses on one of the most important points that Darwin makes. Uh, quote, what is most singular, not only are the plants, etc to a great extent peculiar to those islands, but each for the most part has its own kinds, though they are within sight of each other. You have isolated populations evolving along different lines. 
1859, On the Origin of Species was published, and Thoreau and others in Concord were quick to read it. And Thoreau didn't have long to live after that, but you can see the influence of, his, of Darwin's ideas in the last couple of years of the journal. And here, for instance, Thoreau is discounting the idea that organisms can rise independently in different places, uh, writing about the, um, uh, the spatterdock or bullhead lily. Quote, I see spatterdock pads and pontederia at that little pool at south end of Beckstow's. How did they get there? We are not to suppose as many new creations as pools. Uh, it's another drawing by Barry Moser. Pontederia, which he mentions, is another water plant, also called pickerel weed. has some pretty small purple flowers. Uh, it's also the plant that appears on the cover of, uh, of Thor's wildflowers. For a long time, Thor wondered how plants, especially trees, get from one place to another. And in his biography of Thor, Walter Harding wrote, for years, Thoreau had pondered the puzzle of why and how trees and plants seemed to spring up, where there seemed to be no obvious source for their seeds. And this is a question that brings together plants and animals, because Thoreau recognized the role of squirrels and other creatures in distributing seeds. So by thinking in terms of systems, and by observing the interaction of plants and animals, like a real ecologist, Thoreau began to figure out how pine seeds were distributed by the wind, and how acorns and chestnuts and other heavier seeds were distributed by squirrels and other animals. In May 1856, he writes, I suspect that I can throw a little light on the fact that when a dense pine wood is cut down, oaks, etc., may take its place. He's coming to understand that because of the nuts that are buried by squirrels and other animals and never recovered, either because the animals lose them or, or they die, um, there are always oaks and other trees sprouting up in pine forests, but they don't get very far before they're shaded out by the mature trees. So it's only when the pines are cut down or burned down that the oaks get a chance to grow. So with that thought, I'd like to turn to Thoreau and animals. Uh, so here's the cover of my new book uh, featuring a flying squirrel, which was published in, in March of this year. Um, Again, I was fortunate enough to be able to work with another excellent illustrator. Uh, this is Debbie Cotter Kaspari. She provided uh, 35 drawings for the book, some of them done in the field in Massachusetts, although she lives in Oklahoma, and a number of them that were done specifically uh, for my book. So most of the drawings you'll see coming up are by her. I also want to thank uh, Peter Alden, He's a longtime resident of Concord and an authority on biodiversity. Uh, has worked with E.O. Wilson at Harvard. He's written field guides for the Audubon Society, led nature tours around the world uh, for Lindblad Travel and Road Scholar, and he's also a very funny guy. You may not be able to tell from the photo, but he kindly agreed to um, check some of the animal descriptions in, in my book and provide some background on some animals, uh, which appears in the back of the book. So Walden Pond is fine as long as Thoreau isn't there uh, from The New Yorker. When you look at Thoreau's writings about animals, you see some of the same themes we've seen with flowers. But you all see one basic difference in that he was interacting with animals in a way that you can't do with flowers. And sometimes 
as this indicates, the animals didn't, didn't necessarily appreciate it. I uh, had a complicated relationship with animals. And one creature that illustrates that is the muskrat. Um, by my count, uh, I went through the journal. I, I um, originally thought of doing a big doorstop book that would include every kind of significant passage about animals in Thoreau, um, organized by the type of animal. Um, and I still have that manuscript and find it useful, although it may be too much for, for a book. But one thing I've, I discovered from that is that he seemed to write about muskrats uh, more than any other animal. And I'm not sure it's because he liked them more than any other animal, although he did admire their ability to live in the cold and the damp. But it's partly because he would see his neighbors uh, hunting and trapping them, and partly because he would look for their lodges, which they built in the fall and sheltered in during the winter. Uh, he sometimes called them muskrats and sometimes musquash, which is the Native American word. Here he writes, for 30 years I have annually observed about this time of year or earlier the freshly erected winter lodges of the musquash along the riverside. He often thought about them, uh, animals including muskrats, as if they were another sort of people. He writes, I saw a muskrat come out of a hole in the ice. He is a man wilder than Ray or Melvin. While I am looking at him, I am thinking what he is thinking of me. He is a different sort of man, that is all. And in October 1859, he wrote about them again, saying, if we have no gypsies, we have a more indigenous race of furry quadrupedal men maintaining their ground in our midst still. But despite admiring the muskrat, he couldn't resist pulling their lodges apart to see how they're built. In October 1851, he writes, we pulled one to pieces to examine the inside. There was a small cavity which might hold two or three full-grown muskrats just above the level of the water, quite wet, and of course dark and narrow, communicating immediately with a gallery underwater. <clears throat> but despite being willing to, to tear up their homes, he felt sympathy for them. <clears throat> Uh, writing about hunters and trappers who killed muskrats, he, he described them as if he were at a crime scene. This is a painting by N.C. Wyeth of Goodwin and Haynes, who were two muskrat hunters that Thor writes about. Quote, I see a brute with a gun in his hand, standing motionless over a musquash house, which he has destroyed. I find that he has visited everyone in the neighborhood of Fairhaven Pond, above and below, and broken them all down, laying open the interior to the water, and then stood watchful close by for the poor creature to show its head there for a breath of air. There lies the red carcass of one whose pelt he has taken on the spot, flat on the bloody ice. Uh, some of us may remember reading in Walden about a French-Canadian woodchopper who ate woodchucks, bring, him, bring the meat into his lunch pail to eat in the woods. Uh, and Thora writes that he himself was tempted to seize a woodchuck and devour him raw. He writes in Walden, I caught a glimpse of a woodchuck stealing across my path and felt a strange thrill of savage delight and was strongly tempted to seize and devour him raw, not that I was hungry then, except for that wildness which he represented. He does say elsewhere in Walden that um, on one occasion he ate woodchuck uh, cooked, fortunately, and found it musky. Uh, he was fond of woodchucks, even though they ate the beans he tried to raise at Walden, but uh, didn't always treat them with respect. 
here he writes, I heard a singular sound as of a bird in distress amid the bushes and turned to relieve it. Next thought it a squirrel in an apple tree barking at me, then found that it came from a hole in the ground under my feet, a loud sound between a grunting and a wheezing, yet not unlike the sound a red squirrel sometimes makes, but louder. Looking down the hole, I saw the tail and hindquarters of a woodchuck, which seemed to be contending with another further down. Reaching down carefully, I took hold of the tail, and though I had to pull very hard indeed, I drew him out between the rocks, a bouncing great fat fellow, and tossed him a little way down the hill. As soon as he recovered from his bewilderment, he made for the hole again, but I, barring the way, he ran off elsewhere. So that's just one of the ways that he messed with animals over the years. Um, this drawing is not by Debbie Kaspari, but by Abigail Rohrer, who's also done some wonderful illustrations to Thoreau. And it shows a fox in the snow, which is, is just right for this quotation. Suddenly, looking down the river, I saw a fox some 60 rods off, making across the hills on my left. As the snow lay five inches deep, he made but slow progress, but it was no impediment to me. So yielding to the instinct of the chase, I tossed my head aloft and bounded away, snuffing the air like a foxhound, and spurning the world and the humane society at each bound. It seemed the woods rang with a hunter's horn, and Diana and all the satyrs joined in the chase and cheered me on. Olympian and Elian youths were waving palms on the hills. Getting quite carried away. Uh, Thor was known to capture animals so he could study them at home. Here he's, he catches a flying squirrel in the hollow stump of a hemlock. He wraps it in his handkerchief, brings it home, and keeps it overnight in a wooden box. He writes, I found a flying squirrel, which as my left hand had covered a small hole at the bottom, ran directly into my right hand. It struggled and bit not a little, but my cotton gloves protected me, and I felt its teeth only once or twice. It also uttered three or four dry shrieks at first, something like crack, crack, crack. I rolled it up in my handkerchief and holding the ends tight, carried it home in my hand some three miles. I put it in a barrel and covered it for the night. It was quite busy all the evening gnawing out, clinging for this purpose and gnawing at the upper edge of a sound oak barrel and then dropping to rest from time to time. Mm. He does return the, the flying squirrel to the woods. And October 1855, he repeats the performance and this time capturing a screech owl in a hollow tree and bringing it home in that same handkerchief or a similar one. After watching 10 minutes from the boat, I landed two rods above and stealing quietly up behind the hemlock, though from the windward, I looked carefully round it and to my surprise saw the owl still sitting there. So I sprang round quickly with my arm outstretched and caught it in my hand. It was so surprised that it offered no resistance at first, only glared at me in mute astonishment with eyes as big as saucers. But ere long it began to snap its bill, making quite a noise, and as I rolled it up in my handkerchief and put it in my pocket, it bit my finger slightly, and no one can blame it. Uh, in May 1854, he captures a snapping turtle and keeps it in his boat for a while. On Hubbard's meadow, saw a motion in the water as if a pickerel had darted away. Approached and saw a mid-sized snapping turtle on the bottom. Managed at last, after stripping off my coat and rolling up the shirt sleeve, by thrusting in my arm to the shoulder to get him by the tail and lift him aboard. He tried to get under the boat. He snapped at my shoe and got the toe in his mouth. But sometimes Thor's messing with animals was more, more benign. 
Uh, he tried from time to time to bring frozen creatures back to life. In 1857, he writes, I picked up on the bare ice of the river opposite the oak and Shattuck's land on a small space blown bare of snow, a fuzzy caterpillar, black at the two ends and red-brown in the middle, rolled into a ball or a close ring like a woodchuck. This is a woolly bear caterpillar. I pressed it hard between my fingers and found it frozen. I put it into my hat, and when I took it out in the evening, it soon began to stir and at length crawled about, but a portion of it was not quite flexible. It took some time for it to thaw. The woolly bear is the caterpillar of the Isabella tiger moth. So, despite messing with them, Thoreau sympathized with woodland creatures. Uh, he felt their pain. In Walden, he writes, no humane creature, no humane being, past the thoughtless age of boyhood, will wantonly murder any creature which holds its life by the same tenure that he does. And in one of his letters, he writes, the squirrel that you kill in jest dies in earnest. In eight, October 1860, he writes against the needless killing of squirrels. He was also concerned because by now he's aware that they plant oak and chestnut trees. He writes about the farmers. They little dream of what the squirrels are about, know only that they get their seed corn in the adjacent fields and encourage their boys to shoot them every day, supplying them with powder and shot for this purpose. In newer parts of the country, they have squirrel hunts on a large scale and kill many thousands in a few hours, and all the neighborhood rejoices. In June 1856, he writes, in the large circular hole or cellar at the turntable on the railroad, which they are repairing, I see a star-nosed mole endeavoring in vain to bury himself in the sandy and gravelly bottom. Some inhuman fellow has cut off his tail. In 1857, he finds an abandoned box trap in the woods with the remains of a rabbit inside. And he writes uh, what I think is one of the most haunting passages in all of his work. I won't read the whole thing. Uh, and this uh, is not one of Debbie Kasperi's works. It's, uh, it's uh, Albert Durer's painting of a hare done in 1502. Thora writes, the box had the appearance of having been floated off in an upright position by a freshet. It had been a rabbit's living tomb. He had gradually starved to death in it. What a tragedy to have occurred within a box in one of our quiet swamps. Let the trapping boy dream of the dead rabbit in its ark as it sailed like a small meeting house with its rude spire, slowly with a grand and solemn motion far amid the alders. Thoreau is also sympathetic to domestic animals like the ox. And this is a big white ox named Craig that Debbie drew at the Belchertown Fair here in Massachusetts, where he was, uh, where Craig was competing in the oxen pull. Um, I don't know if he won. Thora writes, I observed this afternoon that when Edmund Hosmer came home from sledding wood and unyoked his oxen, they made a business of stretching and scratching themselves with their horns and rubbing against the posts and licking themselves in those parts which the yoke had prevented their reaching all day. The human way in which they behaved affected me even pathetically. They were too serious to be glad that their day's work was done. They had not spirits enough for that. They behaved as a tired woodchopper might. This was to me a new phase in the life of the laboring ox. It is painful to think how they may sometimes be overworked. I saw that even the ox could be weary with toil. So we've seen already that Thoreau sometimes saw animals as if they were human beings 
and sometimes he saw himself as an animal, different sorts of animals. Here, March 1855, trying the other day to imitate the honking of geese, I found myself flapping my sides with my elbows as with wings and uttering something like the syllables mawak with a nasal twang and twist in my head, and I produced their notes so perfectly in the opinion of the hearers that I thought I might possibly draw a flock down. 1851, he wrote, I wish to ally myself to the powers that rule the universe, to lurk in crystalline thought like the trout under verdurous banks, where stray mankind should only see my bubble come to the surface. This is another painting by N.C. Wyeth from Men of Concord. In the same way that plants uh, mark the course of the seasons, uh, animals follow the seasons with their behavior, gathering nuts for the winter, coming out on a warm day in the spring, and so on. Um, March 1859. It is the spring note of the nuthatch. If I am not mistaken, it is what I have heard in former springs or winters long ago, fabulously early in the spring season, or when we had just begun to anticipate, for it would seem that we, in our anticipations and sympathies, include in succession the moods and expressions of all creatures. He saw the stripes of the chipmunk, which he called the ground squirrel, as a kind of punctuation mark in the story of the year, writing, its lateral stripes, where a new paragraph commences in the revolution of the seasons, double lines. In April, he listens for the sound of the toad and compares it to the arrival of the pigeons, by which he means passenger pigeons, which he writes about several times. They could still be seen in his day. He writes, I love to hear the voice of the first thunder as of the toad, though it returns irregularly like pigeons, far away in his moist meadow where he is warm to life and see the flash of his eye. Here he's writing in early November, but he's making the point that the blue jay belongs to the month of October. The jay is the bird of October. I've seen it repeatedly flitting amid the bright leaves of a different color from them all, and equally bright, and taking its flight from grove to grove. It too, with its bright color, stands for some ripeness in the bird harvest, and its scream, it is as if it blowed on the edge of an October leaf. So animals naturally are more active than plants. So as Thoreau saw it, they didn't just anticipate the seasons, they actually helped bring the change of seasons about. He often uses the phrase to fetch, a bit, fetch the year about to express that. See now hen hawks, a pair soaring high as for pleasure. The peculiar flight of a hawk thus fetches the year about. What Thoreau called hen hawks were red-tailed hawks. And this is uh, Debbie Kasperi's painting of a red-tailed hawk. Even a butterfly can fetch the year about. As I was measuring along the Marlborough Road, a fine little blue slate butterfly fluttered over the chain. Even its feeble strength was required to fetch the year about. And here you get a glimpse of Thoreau um, uh, pursuing one of his day jobs as a surveyor, and he was in great demand uh, for his honesty and his, his extreme accuracy as a surveyor. Crickets were also small but strong. The year is in the grasp of the crickets, and they were hurling it round swiftly on its axle. He could hear crickets through most of the year. Um, they would call faster when it's warm and slower when it's cold. You can actually tell the temperature from the crickets. Uh, he saw them as a kind of pulse in the earth. In October, he writes, 
Thus they stand at the mouths of their burrows in the warm pastures near the close of the year, helping to fetch the year about. So instead of speaking about the axis, instead of speaking about the axis of the earth, he more often called it the axle, which gives you a hint that he, he saw it as a, or felt it as a physical object. How swiftly the earth appears to resolve at sunset, to revolve at sunset, which at midday appears to rest on its axle. And this consciousness of the earth's axle and the way it turns suggests something else about Thoreau. Um, he sometimes thought of himself as nailed down and conquered, but he also had a sense of himself as living on the surface of a planet. Um, in 1842, only five years out of college, he writes, I must make a part of the planet. I must obey the law of nature. In 1850, he writes, as I was stalking over the surface of this planet in the dark tonight, I started a plover resting on the ground and heard him go off with whistling wings. So this, this sense of oneness with the planet and responsibility for it, I think is the mark of someone who is not just a naturalist, but a, a true ecologist. Um, for about 12 years, Thoreau kept up a correspondence with a man named Harrison Gray Otis Blake, or H.G.O. Blake. Uh, they were about the same age, and they wrote letters about various spiritual and transcendental topics. And it's in one of those letters that Thoreau wrote one of his most famous lines, which is this, what is the use of a house if you haven't got a tolerable planet to put it on? And I think that summarizes nicely the idea that Thoreau was no hermit. And even when he was in his cabin at Walden, this being a replica of that cabin, he knew he was part of what we would call an ecosystem and of a fragile planet hurtling through the universe. So Thoreau um, said he didn't enjoy questions, but uh, thank you all for listening, and uh, I don't mind questions. So.